Hello everyone, happy Tuesday to you. I am John Allen, the editor of Crux, your one-stop shopping destination for the very best in smart, wired, and independent Catholic journalism. You can find us online at cruxnow.com. I am also the host of this show, Last Week in the Church. This is the show where we kind of raid the journalistic fridge. We, we take out some news that's, you know, a few days old, but we heat it up, serve it up steaming and delicious. Here's what we've got for you this week. First, the Vatican's trial of the century continues to give us as many questions as it does answers, with new challenges to due process and also new testimony that really does not appear to help the prosecution's case. We'll unpack the latest. Then, the Vatican and Ukraine, the Pope and his top diplomatic aides, continue their full court press to try to stop the war or at least to provide some humanitarian relief. Then, the Emeritus Pope, a new book by a veteran Italian journalist, argues that nine years of having two popes at once proves that that almost by definition creates the basis for division in the church, we'll take a look. Then the Big Bang. Two priest astronomers with the Vatican Observatory provide a new mathematical basis for understanding the first moments of creation. And finally, the Pope's bum knee. Do Pope Francis's health problems signify the beginning of the end of this papacy or simply the beginning of a new phase. We'll try to explain. All that and more is waiting for you on the other side of a brief pause, so please do not go anywhere because I will be right back. All right, welcome back. Happy Tuesday, happy May 3rd in the year of our Lord 2022. As you see this video, my wife Elise and I are going to be in the nation of Slovenia, where I am giving a talk on Catholic journalism later this week. It's something of a, it's kind of a whole roots thing for us, because half of my wife's family is from Slovenia, so it's kind of a homecoming. So do be thinking of us this week. Meanwhile, let's focus our attention for a moment here in Rome on the Vatican. The Vatican's so-called trial of the century, and when I say so-called, I mean largely called by me the trial of the century. This is the civil trial that involves 10 different defendants, including for the very first time a cardinal of the Catholic Church, Italian Cardinal Angelo Becciu, the Pope's former chief of staff, all of whom are accused of various forms of financial crime, most of it having to do with a spectacularly failed $400 million real estate deal in London, but there are also some other bits and pieces of charges thrown in there. It has been going on now for the better part of a year, and as I said at the top, in many ways it continues to give us more questions than answers. Latest developments this week, the, the trial had a hearing this past week, which began with a new challenge from a defense attorney, attorney Luigio Panella, representing a defendant by the name of Enrico Crasso, for, who for many years was a financial consigliere, a financial advisor for the Vatican Secretariat of State. 
Pinella basically raised an objection to the fact that Vatican prosecutors two years ago during the investigations that led to these charges seized a laptop computer from, from Carasso. It's a Lenovo, if that means anything to anyone, and still haven't returned it. And Pinella was arguing that without access to that laptop, it is impossible for him to prepare an adequate defense because that laptop contains information critical to reconstructing the timeline behind the London transaction and his client's role in that transaction. Now, the explanation given by prosecutors for why they haven't returned the laptop is that it's relevant to another part of the investigation. At the same time, however, these prosecutors have also said that they need more time because this laptop is password protected and they haven't been able to examine its contents. Now, Pinella raised the very reasonable question of, well, if you haven't been able even to boot it up, how do you know? it's relevant to some other part of the investigation. And anyway, pointed to this as another reason why this process simply has not provided for an adequate defense. That is, it hasn't respected the due process rights of the defendants. The three-judge panel hearing this case, led by the presiding judge, Giuseppe Pignatone, rejected this challenge, saying it simply repeated, basically, due process, due process challenges that the court has already entertained and rejected, so the trial moves along. Now, speaking of moving along, the main bit of business this week was to hear testimony from Tomasa Di Ruzza. Di Ruzza is the former sort of office head of the Vatican's Financial Information Authority. It's now the Financial Supervision and Information Authority. But anyway, it's the financial watchdog unit that was created under Pope Benedict XVI to ensure that the Vatican is in compliance with international standards in terms of anti-money laundering efforts and also efforts against the financing of terrorism. Now, Durutze has been indicted because allegedly that office, the Financial Information Authority, failed to do what it should have to try to stop this London real estate deal in which the Vatican Secretary of State wanted to buy a piece of property in London. It was a former Herod's warehouse. The idea was that this warehouse would be converted into luxury apartments in the posh neighborhood of Chelsea and would make everybody involved a lot of money. That was the idea. And so the charge is that, that the Financial Information Authority should have done more than it did to try to stop this deal. Now, DeRitz's testimony basically boiled down to a couple of points. One is that the, the Financial Information Authority didn't even learn about this deal until, until 2019. And once they did, they opened an investigation but the only question they were really asked was whether or not the Vatican Bank had the authority to issue a loan to the Secretary of State to try to buy their way out of this deal. And they said, yes, the Vatican Bank could do that. Beyond that, in terms of denouncing somebody, issuing some kind of criminal complaint, Torutza said, well, but look, 
I mean, everybody from the Pope on down, and especially the Pope's new chief of staff, Venezuelan Archbishop Edgar Peña Parra, made it clear to us that they wanted this deal to go ahead. And he's, who was I supposed to denounce? Was I supposed to denounce the substitute, that is, the Pope's chief of staff? His point was that this deal was approved from on high by the most senior officials in the system, and he was simply doing what he was told by those officials to try to facilitate this transaction. Now, the prosecution has charged that these senior officials were essentially hoodwinked by a criminal cabal. Derutza said in his testimony he, he never even met most of the other people who are on trial here, that his contacts were entirely with the Pope and his top aides. So this does not really appear to bolster the prosecution case. As, as I have said before, there are really two narratives here. One is the claim that there was something criminal going on. The other is that this was simply a case of terrible financial mismanagement, and now the search for a scapegoat. Of those two narratives, Derutz's testimony would appear to bolster the latter narrative. But as ever, we will see how this shakes out. One other point worth making is that recently an interview with a former senior Vatican official, German Cardinal Gerhard Mueller, former head of the Vatican's Congregation for the Doctrine of the Faith, which is its kind of doctrinal watchdog agency, this interview came to light, and among other things, Mueller commented on the current trial, saying that he didn't think that it was fair because the Pope, he said, has prejudged the outcome. The Pope stripped Bechu of his privileges as a cardinal before the trial even began. And Mueller went on to say, this is the problem with having a Latin American Pope because it distorts European concepts of the separation of powers between the executive and the judiciary. Now, look, I mean, the problem with that is that, first of all, Latin America has a very healthy concept of the separation of powers. Virtually every Latin American constitution requires it. There are a number of Latin American nations, including Brazil and Colombia, where an independent judiciary has held former executive officials accountable for various alleged crimes. But more importantly, this is a structural problem that really has nothing to do with Pope Francis personally. The structural problem is that after 1870, the fall of the Papal State, popes accepted the idea of a separation of powers ad extra, that is, every place else, but they never accepted it inside the Vatican. So you still have a system of civil justice in the Vatican where the pope is both the supreme executive authority and also the supreme judicial authority. And it's going to be very hard to persuade anybody that this trial is fair as long as that's the case. Now, there is no theological reason why that has to be true. The Pope is the supreme authority on faith and morals. He's not the church's supreme authority on what constitutes financial crime. That's a civil question that doesn't touch Catholic doctrine. It would be easy enough to provide for a genuine separation of powers in the Vatican as well and to have a truly independent judiciary. And perhaps that actually will be the long-term historical significance of this trial, regardless of whether these defendants are found innocent or guilty. 
it may point to this long overdue reform that would provide the Vatican with a truly world-class system of criminal justice. We'll see. All right, the Vatican in Ukraine. So the Pope in his Angelus address on Sunday once again addressed the crisis in Ukraine. He said he suffers and he cries because of the violence, particularly the impact on innocent civilians. He once again called for the creation of humanitarian corridors, particularly for the besieged city of Mariupol. He pointed out that May in the Catholic world is the month of Mary, and Mariupol basically means the city of Mary. And he talked about the cruel irony that this city should be subject to such appalling violence and difficulties in terms of rescuing the innocents. Now, this came on the back, by the way, of an interview that his top diplomatic aide, Italian Cardinal Pietro Parolin, gave about the Ukrainian situation, in which Parolin made some very interesting comments. Number one, he said that war is by definition a sacrilege and can never be justified on the basis of the word of God or Christian values. Now, Without naming Vladimir Putin or Patriarch Kirill of the Russian Orthodox Church, Parolin's words were essentially a direct challenge to both of those guys, both of whom have argued that they are waging this war in defense of Christian values. Kirill has cited both the Old and New Testaments in defense of the Russian invasion of Ukraine. So Parolin was essentially saying, uh-uh, not buying it. That's not the case. Now, Paroline also addressed the fact that there had been talk about a meeting between Pope Francis and Patriarch Kirill, but that the plug was pulled on that from the Vatican side. He said, yeah, we decided that that meeting could create confusion and, it, and it's going to remain suspended. That is, it isn't going to happen until there are positive developments in Ukraine. It would seem that the Vatican is trying to use the idea of this summit in a kind of carrot and stick approach to get Kirill to change his tune and to get the Russians to change course in Ukraine. We'll see how effective that is. He also discussed the idea of a papal trip to Kiev, said that that's still on the table. It's something the Pope is interested in, but it too is not going to happen until the situation improves because he said, this is repeating something the Pope himself said, in a recent interview with an Argentine journalist, there's no point in the Pope going to Kiev if the war is simply going to start up again the next day. So clearly, Parolin was trying to make the point that they are looking for concrete improvements on the ground. And then finally, Parolin also addressed the controversy over Good Friday and the Via Crucis procession when Pope Francis invited a Ukrainian and a Russian woman to carry the cross together which generated much criticism from Ukrainians who thought it implied a kind of moral equivalence between aggressor and victim. Parolin acknowledged that by worldly standards, this was a scandalous thing to do, but he said the friendship between these two women, which existed before the war and still exists, he said is a powerful counter-testimony to the violence we're seeing in Ukraine. One final thing about the Vatican in Ukraine before we leave this subject, there was a report this week 
in the Italian newspaper Il Messaggero that the Pope had tried three times to propose humanitarian corridors for Mariupol. And in each one of these three times, the Russians said no. According to the report, the third proposal actually included the idea of civilians being evacuated aboard a ship that would bear the Vatican flag. Bear in mind, Mariupol is a port city. And the, the ironworks, where most of the civilians are, are concentrated, is actually right next to the port. So that would have had some sense to it. According to this story, the Russians flatly refused every time. That report has not been independently confirmed, but it is worth noting that both the Pope and Paroline have said that behind the scenes, the Vatican is trying to do everything it can to bring an end to the conflict and also to protect innocent civilians. Now, as of Monday morning, President Zelensky of Ukraine reported that one humanitarian corridor from Mariupol was actually working, that some civilians had been evacuated. You know, we will see how this continues to play out. All right, we move on now to the emeritus pope, veteran Italian journalist Massimo Franco, who I have known for, well, longer than probably either one of us would care to admit. Franco has a new book out that is the, the title of which is The Monastery, Nine Years of a Shadow Pope. And it's about Benedict XVI, the emeritus pope, currently living in the Mater Ecclesia Monastery in Vatican grounds. And basically, Franco's argument is that without Benedict ever wanting this to be the case, without Benedict ever doing anything to fuel it, the Mater Ecclesia has become a rival center of power to the Casa Santa Marta residence where Pope Francis lives in the Vatican. Franco said that everybody who feels wounded or alienated by the, by the Francis papacy looks to Benedict XVI and the Mater Ecclesia as kind of their point of reference. And his deeper argument is that this is the problem with having an emeritus pope, that it invites rival camps and a kind of de facto schism in the church, and said that this calls for some kind of reform in the office of an emeritus pope. Now, you know, it, it is a book well worth contemplating, and Franco is a very serious journalist. I will confess, I'm a little skeptical myself about the core thesis, because, you know, here's the way I would look at it. Let's assume that Benedict XVI did not resign. Let's assume that he had died in office. And so there's no emeritus pope. Does that mean that nobody would be upset with Pope Francis right now? and that those people who are upset, they wouldn't find some other symbol, some other flag bearer for their grievances? Of course not. You know, people who are angry are endlessly creative about finding figureheads and symbols to express that anger. So I'm not sure this has really anything to do with the institution of an emeritus pope. I think it has more to do with the fact that the Catholic Church, which is called to be countercultural, has instead in so many ways imbibed uncritically the ideological divisions of the surrounding culture, and we've organized ourselves into competing political camps, which is profoundly unchristian and uncatholic, but nevertheless, it's what we've done. And Benedict XVI is since no more than an innocent bystander to all of that. He has been dragooned, but if he weren't here, 
somebody else for sure would be playing that role. I mean, let's remember during the John Paul years, in some ways, the Archdiocese of Milan under the late Cardinal Carlo Maria Martini, the, the great white hope of the church's liberal wing, was in effect a rival center of power. My point being, you don't need an emeritus pope to have division. Division, you know, to paraphrase Jesus from the Gospels, I suppose, will always be with us, regardless of what institutions you have to occasion it. All right, the Big Bang. The Vatican Observatory, created in 1891, made some news this past week because two priest astronomers who serve at the observatory, one a Jesuit priest and the other a diocesan priest from the Italian Diocese of Reggio Emiliana, have come up with a new mathematical formula to describe the initial moments of the Big Bang. Now, I'm not going to say any more than that because, frankly, this is all way over my head and I don't quite understand it. Basically, this has to do with there are apparently two different mathematical ways of looking at the Big Bang, and they've always been kind of difficult to get them to go together. And these two priests have now provided an alternative that I guess is supposed to be more satisfactory? Look, I don't know. What I do know is that this is a reminder that far from being the enemy of science that it is sometimes characterized as, the Catholic Church actually over the centuries has been probably the greatest patron of the sciences in the history of Western civilization. I mean, let's bear in mind, these two priests and their article explicitly linked their work to the work of Georges Lemaitre, who was a Belgian Catholic priest in the late 19th and early 20th century, who basically came up with the Big Bang Theory. He actually called it the primeval atom. The, the phrase Big Bang comes from the British astronomer Fred Hoyle in an interview with the BBC. But in any event, Lemaitre had the idea of a universe that had this one moment in which everything kind of exploded, and then it, it expanded from there. The idea of expanding universe was later confirmed by Edward Hubble and the famous Hubble telescope. And so, you know, the, the, the notion that there's some kind of inherent hostility between religious faith and a scientific account of creation and the unfolding of the universe is just nonsense. And this week's news out of the Vatican Observatory is the latest reminder of the point. All right, finally, the Pope's bum knee. So recently, Pope Francis has had to either cancel or curtail some activities because he continues to experience intense pain in one of his knees. Technically, we're talking about a case of osteoarthritis, basically a knee where the ligament has problems and it generates intense pain in terms of motion or standing upright for very long. The Pope, every time he has to sit rather than stand to deliver an address, he continues to joke about this and apologize for it. Now, this knee problem, of course, comes on, on top of his long-standing problems with sciatica, the fact that he, he lost one of his lungs at least a good chunk of one of his lungs when he was a younger man. 
And it has inspired some people to wonder if this is the beginning of the end of the Francis papacy. But here's the thing. None of those conditions, certainly not his knee problem, are life-threatening. I mean, I had a grandma who developed a knee problem and she was in her 60s and she lived to her 90s. Okay, so these are conditions that can be managed. You know, more realistically, probably what we're looking at here is not the beginning of the end of the papacy, unless, of course, Francis himself would choose that through the route of resignation. But what we may be looking at is the beginning of a new phase in which the Pope is simply more limited in terms of his mobility his ability to get around, his ability to lead large public events. His stamina may increasingly be challenged. He may increasingly seem, seem fatigued and weakened when he appears in public. Now, the if you want to ask, is a papacy sustainable under those conditions? My answer is, of course it is, because that was the story of the late John Paul years, wasn't it? I mean, John Paul chose to allow his illness to unfold in full public view. And he did so in part because he was convinced it was, an it was important to offer the world a witness of how what's really important ultimately from a Christian point of view is not doing, but being. Not what you can accomplish, but who you are. And that witness was in many ways incredibly powerful. And so if Pope Francis chooses to go the same route, it does not, I don't think any of us have to worry that it is fundamentally going to compromise the papacy. I think what we do have to be worried about, and this was a question that occurred a lot of the late John Paul years, is, is John Paul really still governing? Or are other people governing in his name? Now, there certainly is no indication right now that Pope Francis is not still governing. In fact, all indications are that he continues to call the shots himself very personally. You know, we will see in terms of going forward how much he is able to continue doing that. But I would point out that having a bad knee, having sciatica, not being able to walk around a lot, and not being able to stay, you know, on your feet for long periods of time, none of that has anything to do with your mental acuity or your ability to remain very much in charge. So my feeling would be that this does not necessarily mean that the papacy is winding down. I think what it means is the papacy is ending a new, entering a new phase in which Pope Francis will be forced, like John Paul before him, to make his peace with being more limited in terms of his physical activity. All right, that is our show for this week. I want to remind you that you can find full coverage of all of these stories on the Crux site. That is cruxnow.com. When you're on the Crux site, you will find a handy-dandy way to make a quick and easy financial contribution to Crux. If you were so inclined, I would be deeply grateful. This show depends on your generosity. And so if you could find your way clear, to, to helping us out, we would be infinitely grateful. We will be here next Tuesday, same bat time, same bat channel. Over the course of the next seven days, my charge to you is stay safe, stay healthy, have a fantastic and blessed week, and we will talk to you again soon.